Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA degree, and a three-year certificate program focus on experimental learning and sustained studio courses. Both programs invite students to focus on painting or sculpture, with drawing as an integral foundation for all creative production. Each semester begins with a two-week drawing or sculpture marathon to generate momentum and expand one's range of strategies for future studio work. Since its inception, the New York Studio School has emphasized rigorous learning through direct experience. Learn about scholarship opportunities, schedule a tour, and ask questions by emailing info at nyss.com. The school welcomes applications for fall 2020, full-time study through nyss.org. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Welcome to Artists on Music Episode 2. This episode will feature some snippets of conversations about music with artists from Polly Applebaum to Brian Balot, Matthew Fisher, and Angela Haish. First, we'll start off with a conversation with Polly, where she talks about Captain Beefheart, John Cage, and music's relationship to the experience in art. Here's Polly talking about music. lost my train of thought but it was um for me going back you know it was a nice excuse to go back and I think we all and it was to a time and also thinking about the music of the 60s too which was you know I remember hearing for the first time I don't know Jefferson Airplane singing about (laughs) have a revolution which is you know is a 16 year old thinking about (laughs) revolution and I I think it's you know it's quirky yeah I think there's some some 16 year olds now who are thinking about a different kind of revolution (laughs) I hope so yeah me too but I don't know what what made me think about that. But it, it was maybe just music. But I th- I think that um, I got, I got lost from the from the thought to to the the musical the musical influence. Well, that time uh, period you were I mean if you, the '60s and thinking about like Donovan and Jefferson Airplane and that kind of that aesthetic and the the visuals of that period too were so oh my god bright and you know, yes. I, I, trippy, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's a, it's a kind of aesthetic, yeah. which you could definitely see color-wise being an in, maybe an influence in your yeah, work no, too. Yeah, no, it was definitely, I think the 60s have so much. And I think it, it's more to, I, I sort of, um, now that, so alternative, when alternative had a good work, had a, I think alternative now is going under whatever, but experiential and also, um, 
you know, I think this kind of open-endedness and a kind of looser, you know, that things could come from so many different places. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that you rebel, and I mean, I think that that sense of rebellion was incredibly important. You know, I think what I was, you know, maybe what I re- what you rebel against so you get older is the stuff that you love, but I think that that sense of rebellion in, in art is... Um, is healthy. Yeah. You know, it opens doors too. Yes, it does. And I, I think that music for me was really um, influential in that sense. It's easier sometimes to to see your world in in music. I, I do it all the time. Yes. <laughs> I think about that. <laughs> you know. And do it all the time. And I think I when I'm talking to students, I do you know, I, I bring up relationships to music all the time. It probably drives them crazy. But I just think it's a great parallel analogy to things you know well, it's a great way of sharing I think you know because my um, studio assistant you know we're always and he gets a kick out of some of the things like I'll say oh do you know the incredible string band or something like yeah, that yeah. and he'll, he'll love that right you know and then he'll give me the latest of of what's going on and and there's a lot of I, I think it's intergenerational sharing it kind of you know um And I also think in music, you have um, John Cage, you know, you have, well, you know what, it's funny because when I was in, um, there's a great show in Vienna about music, the relationship between um, art bands and uh, artists' bands. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and they had Captain Beefheart Mm -hmm. in an early Captain Beefheart on the beach at Cannes, and I had forgotten all about that. And I was just like, Oh my God! I was just transformed. Yeah. So it, it is, and I and you know I think that I work the way I work these days is it's um, it's um, it, it's an installation, but you know people are on mostly it's the rugs now, and it's it's a it's a whole installation, and people are in. They're on. They're allowed to walk on the rugs. They're allowed to sit and hang out in my work, mm-hmm. and I think that has something to do with listening to music. Yeah, you know, in and hanging out, being engulfed and, in the experience. Yes, and I think that music has maybe kind of led the way for me to to do that. Maybe open up the space of the work, which is pretty great. I, it's funny too because I think I recently I was saying something about the fact that music wins in a way because the sound goes inside of you. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a way, when you look at art, it goes into your eyes. But there's mm-hmm. something different about the physicality of sound when it comes into you. Well, you know, the thing that maybe it made me think about, because I, when I do talk about, you know, when people ask, well, why are you always on the floor? <laughs> and I said, you know, it really was the physicality. Because um, when you look at something, your eyes look at something, it's just, and look at a painting, it's just there. But yeah. if... You know, with my work in in the older, you walk around or you walk through, and now I've let people in and on. I always did talk about the physicality, but I didn't really yeah. realize its connection to music. But now thinking, I really think there is. And right. obviously, you know, there's, you know, I'm always listening to music and I'm using analogies to certain kinds of music and, and um, things like that. But you know, I I think you're you're absolutely right. It is it it is this physicality thing. Yeah. That's really your senses. It's you know, color is a whole your physicality to color and light, mm-hmm. and 
walking through and feeling is really a nonverbal experience. Yes, for sure. And I think if there's one thing technology has to offer when it comes to making artwork is that it can crack that mm-hmm. shell in a way because you can kind of immerse people sometimes with video or with sound in relation to work. I remember seeing that early Charles Long piece where he collaborated with Stereolab. Oh, yeah. Where you could sit and kind of like listen. And I thought that was so cool to like blend those two things together. It felt really fresh and different. You know what I mean? To be in the art or like engaging in the artwork. You know what it also does? It, you know, because I don't know if people talk about your work that way. They probably do. But, you know, with me, it's kind of, there is a performative element to the work. And the performative element is usually kind of very private. Right. But I think what I love now is I'm able to share it Mm -hmm. with people. Next up is my talk with Brian Balak. We spoke so much about music, and I feel like we could have recorded a whole other podcast for a couple hours talking about um, his jazz collection, his amazing vinyl that he had, his experience with all sorts of genres of music. I mean, he was a real sort of encyclopedia of everything music. Uh, we talk about everything from like Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, his big record collection, which he had a lot of records in his studio. And uh, the directness of music and its um, ability to cut out the middleman and get right into it. So here's Brian talking about music. I mean, we have something in common. A deep love for a lot of music. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. And just our yeah. messages, like, it seemed like um, we had a lot of similar interests. Music is no bullshit. <laughs> it's direct. Yeah, it's direct. It disappears. It's like smoke. It disappears. It it, go, it 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 also is physical. The you know the sound waves are literally massaging you, touching you. Mm-hmm. It's textural. Um, it's funny because I think that the arts allows for a lot of bullshitting. Yeah, and music you just wouldn't have the patience to listen to art that's trying to bullshit. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, you just there's a real visceral reaction to it, and yeah, yeah, there's something beautiful about the directness of it. Completely. Um, I felt like when I grew up, like the scarier older kids were into rock or whatever it was Van Halen, Iron Maiden, Clam, yeah, right, all yeah. that stuff, and I just bolted the other direction when I was a kid and got really, you know, ran to my grandparents' music, and so I was listening to a lot of. Um, swing, big yeah. band. Um, but meanwhile, at my house, my father was playing a lot of jazz. Of course, there was he played a lot of Miles Davis and the Gil Evans stuff. Mm-hmm. Played a lot of Dave Brubeck. And uh, is this when you were in the swing? Or is this so? Before? I was in the swing. Like, uh, were you young? Yeah, I was in kindergarten. I love, I love imagining, <laughs> imagining your dad listening to like Kind of Blue. And you're listening to Bunny Berrigan. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was that kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so when I was really young, it was the disco era. I wasn't listening to disco. And um, Did for, you come around to it? 
to disco yeah 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 me yeah. too yeah in a real way uh love disco now oh, i hated it when i was really young because my parents liked it yeah and they would go disco dancing which was really embarrassing yeah watch them do the hustle in the living room oh it was terrible <laughs> yeah. with these giant collars and they got so into it <laughs> completely and right. you know at that age you don't you don't want to see your parents having fun or no. getting into something no 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 no, no no so it was terrible but then Later on, you're like, oh, this disco is pretty good. Awesome. Now I get it. It's so strange like, like that, um, how the passage of time really does affect everything. Yeah, it does. Um, but, yeah, so my father was listening to Cannibal Adderley, Bill Evans, these kind of people. So when I started to really put my um, fangs into the jazz, I um, was trying to, you know, listen to music music that would send me into another universe yeah you know so i actually lived where i lived on park avenue in east orange was right across from upsala college and those were the radio towers that wfmu was broadcasting oh nice so i'd hear wfmu wbgo i heard a lot of strange music from wfmu but i also from wbgo would hear like um um charlie parker yeah and but I soon ran right to John Coltrane mm-hmm. and John Coltrane was everything to me. Yeah. Like, um, I'd never heard music like that before in my life. Did you hear like the live, my favorite things record? Oh yeah. Which you're like, wow, it's an hour long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, love Supreme, I think is one of the greatest albums of all time. Of yeah. Everything. I mean, you know, better than Taylor Swift. Um, no, come on. Let's <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, yeah, Love Supreme. It, I specifically like the one, two, three, uh, the the first three uh, movements. Yeah. Um, but you know, from from listening to him, I also listened to Eric Dolphy, and then uh, I tried to jump into all of that um, free jazz. So yeah. Ornette Coleman, Cecil Taylor, Farrow Sanders, all that kind of stuff. Um. Anthony Braxton. Anthony Braxton, absolutely. Um, though, like, and to tell you the truth, but when when I started hanging out with uh, Melissa and her crew, it was wild because I um, I felt noise and free jazz definitely have connection. Very, yeah. You know, and so, so I was seamlessly was able to pop into that scene and and um, just really, yeah, it was. It was um, well, that music that, you know, came out of there wouldn't exist without free jazz, really. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just in the same way like Daft Punk wouldn't exist without all that disco. Yeah. You know? It's just the building blocks of what's yeah. coming down the line. Yeah. So, um, man, you, but you listen to a lot of stuff and collect records. Did yeah. you get into world stuff, too? Like music from different places? and. Yep. The thing was is that um, my father was doing record-covered albums, right? So he did a lot of stuff for Sal Soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the person he collaborated with um, who got him a lot of these gigs w- did a lot of the paste-up and mechanicals for non-such records. So um, my father would play Eric Satie, and mm-hmm. that was definitely some of the first stuff that I heard that made me think, like, yeah, oh, this is an artist. Yeah. And it was great to then f- go into... Eric Satie and learn a little bit more about him and realize he was actually a proto-Dadaist. And he's one of these very strange and mystical uh, enigmas of music. You know, and think about this guy. They called him the Velvet Gentleman. 
Not yeah. the not to be confused with the Velvet Fog. Mel Torme. Mel Torme. But it's he is such a wild character, um, and it's just funny to think of him right there, like what you know, in a world in a strata where WC and Ravel are kings. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the odd man out. But at the same time, both those guys loved him. And then a, a group of younger kids formed around Eric Satie and his eccentricity. Um, and that they were called the Six. So um, you have someone like Darius Milo or Francis Poulenc, another one of my favorites. But I didn't get to them until much later. But w- the point was, is when I heard Eric Satie, it stopped me dead in my tracks in a similar way to... Coltrane. Um, Coltrane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was always exploring multiple streams of, of, of music uh, side by side. And you asked if I listen to international music. Yeah, absolutely. Nonsuch had um, great in, international uh, yeah. recordings. It, it was somewhere around in the 2000s where I really got obsessed, I would just buy whatever folkways I could. Mm-hmm. So I was always buying folkways records and different types of stuff like that. Um, but also around 2000, I heard a show on WFMU called The Audio Kitchen. And that show, uh, host, his name is The Professor. And it was a show dedicated to lost and found sound mm-hmm. um, stuff that was that was on media like cassette tapes or reel to reels or wired recordings and were found in junk stores, thrift stores, attics, basements. That sounds pretty interesting. It, I never heard it. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. I became obsessed. I became um, someone that ran around and hunted for this type of recordings. I became very close to. Um, the professor and would supply the audio kitchen with a a lot of their um, material and even like kind of mixed it up and made my own songs based on it and stuff. But um, it's amazing. uh, This found stuff. Yeah. And it's also probably why I'm in a certain way allergic to Instagram and the social medias of aspect of consciousness today, because in a certain way, the the found material, whether whether it's found photography or cassette tapes, found audio, looks very similar to the um, material that you would find on YouTube. Yeah. But the fact is, is that most of this material was really made for an audience of one, two, three, four, you know, maybe right. nobody. Yeah. You know, a lot of these recordings are sometimes they're just kids spazzing out in their bedroom. There's you no know. intent that it's going to be seen by or picked up by anyone. Yeah, let alone turn into Justin Bieber. Yeah. You know, so yeah. um, that is a big conceptual difference between the amateur material. Right. Um, there's something that I really love about the idea that people are being artful in their own life. Next up is Matthew Fisher. Uh, he talks a lot about his interest in seeing live music and that experience and how the sort of different permutations of seeing a song live can really inspire you. Uh, we had a lot of shared music, uh, generationally a lot of shared music growing up and, and I think we connected on a lot of things, bands that we were both into when 
Matthew getting into a little talk on music. Were you ever a big live music person? I, I was, but I'd always see the same like two bands. Yeah, that came that? through. Um, Lamb Chop from Nashville. Oh, wow, remember uh, that? What was that guy's name? Kurt Wagner. Yeah, that voice. Yeah, nothing like it. Amazing, great amazing. band. It's such I a great. Saw Lamb Chop play with Smog. Trying to in Pittsburgh, I think once, and uh, it was just great. Yeah, I think I saw them like maybe like twelve times when I lived here. That's a deep cut. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of people know who Lamb Chop is. Um, they're getting. I mean, they're getting there. I mean, Are they, they're still doing it. Yeah, no, they just. Um, I don't know. The new album they came out with last year called Flautus. Oh, I didn't even. I'm uh, check it out. off the radar. I yeah, they're. It's totally different. You know, they're. I think perhaps the most cringe-worthy music description is alt country. There you go. And I think of any band that was labeled that, the first thing you want to do is get as far away from that type of label as possible. So this album, he kind of went completely different direction with the band and makes sense they've had like you know 12 albums different direction is like less more country yeah more almost like um uh techno in a way oh really yeah spoken word techno like uh but it's it's, you know he's just such a smart uh writer of lyrics did Um, you used to like will oldham yeah yeah monty prince and yeah um, brothers yeah exactly you know some of those songs you know there's always a test uh you know shout out when the, those songs just become part of your life even yeah. when you stop listening to the music so Gulf Shores you know every now and then just kind of runs through my mind yeah that Palace EP that he, this is early on I used to drive across the country with friends and we listened to that in like you know Utah or Montana perfect music for that landscape yeah. camping out in the middle of the night and stuff like that so wait Lamb Chop was one what was the other one uh, the clientele oh I don't know them. Or the clientele. I, mean, I, I know the, the name of them, but I don't know their music well. There were <laughs> Is it indie rock? It, it I guess the history was they were billed as the next Radiohead when their first album came out, which is you know, means that you're going to not be yeah, the that's next Radiohead. Shooting, that's shooting high. Yeah. Or they they weren't they didn't build themselves like no, that. No, I but mean for that the, was like the, the, the buzz and it, it just kind of like you know, just <laughs> was not the next Radiohead. But uh, yeah, they're like an English um, kind of you know uh, '60s redux yeah. of, of that you know, um, and I you know saw them several times you know include I think my favorite show I saw them was over at the Maxwell's in Hoboken oh yeah which was just is that place still around sadly no yeah I wouldn't think no it was such you know such a beautiful place to see a show and it was yeah. also like the size of a shoebox you I remember know, seeing Yellow Tango there bad way back dude that was that was like you know. When when in the future we can time travel, yeah, people are going to time right. travel to that show, yeah, because that was that's their home turf, man. Yeah, what a treat to see them. And I saw Yola Tango multiple times. So yeah, my the band I used to be in way back, we opened up for them oh, nice. in New Haven, one of the best shows. Oh, Just excellent. not because it was a good show, because it was it was outdoors and it was cold, so it was hard to play, but. But just opening for them was great. When we flew out of LAX this summer, I was uh, at the bar next to Ira. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like, I don't want to be the dude that's like, hey, man, you're really cool. Yeah, what do you say? Right? I was like, I tried to go like with a, you know, with a deep cut because I, I saw Lamb Chop a couple of years ago. And the opening act was something called Charlie Horse. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, it was at uh, Moulin Rouge over in, the, in yeah. the village. And so nobody showed up for Charlie Horse. And so when Charlie Horse came on the stage, I was like, oh, that's the tall guy from Yola Tanga. And I was like, well, that's 
the other guy from Yolotanga. And I was like, that's Yolotanga. Yeah. So it turned out Charlie Horse was the Yolotanga cover band. Oh, really? That was Yolotanga. <laughs> so they just. They pl- would just go under another name. Yeah, because they didn't want everybody to come out. Because they're actually Lamb Chop and Yolotanga are pretty tight. So. Yeah. Um, so I, it was like an amazing 45 minute set of Yolotanga in a half packed, you know, venue. You should have walked up to him and been like, you know, you look like the guy in Charlie Horse. Well, so when I saw him at LAX, I was like, yo, you know, I was trying to be cool. Like, yo, man, I know, I know your history. Like yeah, I yeah. saw, I saw you guys as Charlie horse. And he's like, the fuck you talking about? <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, it was lamb chop. You said like lamb chop. You opened for lamb chop. He's like, oh yeah. You know, he didn't this, remember this, it. This, oh, hell no. You, they just played like, you know, 16,000 shows. Yeah. But, to you, Charlie horse was a big thing yeah. for them. That was a one night name yeah, that they no. threw out of their mind. Exactly. So he was just like, all right, dude. I was like, all right. And then I got back, and then I was like, "Dude, talk to my wife." I was like, "No, I just talk to Ira." And he's like, "Oh, is he over there sitting with that lady?" I was like, "George is here." <laughs> but um, no, it, it's I love what I love about Yola Tanga and Lamb Chop for me is they have that large depth of recordings of records, studio records. Yeah. And when both of those bands perform those songs live, they they take the songs to a new place. So yeah. it's like you you know what they're gonna play, you know that's gonna be cherry chopstick. But how they go about it and how they change it for that performance, and, and they change it you know multiple times for different performances, I find extraordinarily exciting. Yeah, they have some improvisation going on there, yeah. which you wouldn't expect in a band that sounds kind of like them, right? No, exactly. And then there's like another you know. So for a while, I would do a lot of um, live concerts on YouTube, which is a great. Yeah nerd alert um but there was this amazing one in portland that yolotanga did it and they opened the show with night falls on hoboken which is this like 20 minute instrumental yeah and it's like just such a great like you know the whole arena's jazzed for you guys to perform you come out and you play this beautiful you know slow jam yeah but they're able to kind of you know extend that into the next song and the, the structure of how they do it is to me is fascinating and as as an artist, as a painter that uses the same motif, sometimes multiple different paintings, I, I relate to that in a way. Yeah, I have, I recall them playing. Didn't they do a Sun Ross cover? Yeah. I think they did like Rocket Number Nine or something. I mean, they just got such a catalog. You yeah, know? I was like, That's they've amazing. done it all. They've They're, done it all. You wouldn't expect a band like that to do a Sun Ra cover, which is pretty great. Yeah, and it's the respect of the craft that you have that you're, you can just do something like that pull it up and and transfer and back to our idea of how maybe these influences are buried within the work now yeah you you can pay respect to it and make it your own at the same time right i like doing that time travel and thinking about like where our work was at that time and then listening to certain like i've been listening to a lot of uh two things like super chunk which was a huge band for me and in a developmental pyramid like pavement was big back then right 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 bands like that and then a lot of drum and bass for some reason just getting into that and it reminds me of like certain periods of my development which i find exciting as i'm working now and trying to tweak things you know you're always i feel like you're always trying to reconnect with those feet like moments where you break into something new right. like a new development new which energy. other other people might not be able to see it it might be minuscule but it's a feeling that you get but every painting we do has uh hundreds of minuscule decisions in it that yeah. result in it you know that aren't necessarily apparent but build up the vibe and energy around it next up is angela Hesh. angela talks a lot about her experience growing up and playing the flute 
and how playing music kind of informed her creative path, getting her start in being creative. Um, she also talks a little bit about bands like R.E.M., and uh, which had a big impact on her as well. She's definitely someone who uh, actually playing music was a big part of her uh, creative genesis. So here's Angela talking about her experiences with music. I I wish this was cooler, but I started playing the flute. Nice. That's cool. <laughs> no, it's not. I, it's like, another, yeah, I really wanted to play the saxophone, like, so bad. That was my instrument. Really? Yep. Yeah. It wasn't oh that God. cool. It was. It's way cooler than the flute. I mean, the now flute is like, it's cool geez. in retrospect, but yeah. I don't think then it was that cool. Oh, man. I, th- I thought the saxophone was like, yeah, I don't know. I really wanted to play saxophone. My friend played saxophone. Um, but my dad or one of my parents suggested I play the flute because it's like, e- small. it's small and like, and true, like to their to their point, like when I would ever, whenever I would see kids like carrying saxophone cases in the snow it's at like slog. six in the morning, yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, I don't know that would that would have sucked. So the flute was good for for that. But. Well, the sax, it's big, but it's not like French horn or tuba big. Yeah, tubas. I feel like they just like left those in school. Yeah, My friend not, played the tuba. And he like just he just tuba. like left that in school. And <laughs> You might get stuck yeah. under a snowdrift and yeah. never seen again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to yeah. play the tuba to sound off an alarm for people to find I you. I know. Oh, my God. It's, yeah. it's amazing that smaller kids, though, can play that. I know. You know. Yeah, I remember a kid on my bus had played the trombone. Yeah. And watching him, like, lug this trombone. My son plays the trombone. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a big one, too. Yeah, it's huge. He's got, like, a tenor one. Oh. It's bigger than him. Wait, I don't know the difference between t- tenor and... It's just got more, like, instead of the one kind of like u-shape in the back it's got like all the twisties oh wow yeah oh cool yeah but it's a, it's it's a haul yeah i can imagine <laughs> but oh my god we got one for home so that way he doesn't have to yeah i feel it. like you kind of have to have one those instruments you have to i know my friend who played the tuba just had maybe one that he kept at home maybe not they're also like super expensive yeah too. they are yeah yeah i don't know um well yeah, the flute is much more manageable yeah much more manageable and it's got kind of was chosen for convenience but you weren't that into it no I actually was really into it because I had a really hard time in school I was never a good student I was pretty I mean I was a good student I was like I behaved and all that and I did my homework I just didn't do it right and I didn't um I had a really hard time uh test with test test taking see well you were a great New Zealand Catholic school student. Yeah, that I was just the thrived in the New you, Zealand Catholic school system. And that's the structure you kind of came up in, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, um, I don't know. That's kind of a bad excuse, though, because if I'm still... I just, yeah, I just had a hard time, a harder time in school. Um, like, I got by. It was just like, you know, when you're in high school, there's, like, so much importance. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of weight on Yeah, there's, like, too much weight. So, so the band gave you some... Academic yeah. cred. Yeah, I was like really good at it and I really loved it. I Do really you still loved play? No. I really loved playing <laughs> with other people. Yeah, like that was somehow no. two letters. But the, no. the intonation was <laughs> there is no possible way I would ever play that. I would thing. never I feel like embarrassed. It's really f- like yeah. I don't know, it's really weird. I have a weird thing I'll, that I probably should figure out with the flute that I don't know, I feel like there's like unresolved feelings, but <laughs> 
don't know. Um, you didn't close the door completely on the relationship? I don't think I did, yeah. <laughs> People bring it up. It's like... Sorry. No, I, no. I didn't know this one was <laughs> fresh. Tutsi subject. Um, no, I, I used to play it like every once in a while. The other thing is like the flute. It's just such a... Like really, where are you going to go? Where are you going to take that on your own? You know, like I played... I was really into like competing and playing in those like state orchestras and yeah. stuff. And like that was so much fun. And um, I mean, it's just, I think like the reason why that's satisfying is the reason my music is satisfying for, and it's just like playing, being a part of something like yeah. bigger than yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, so, that was such a good feeling. It was like, did you listen to a lot of music growing up? I did. What were you into? I was into, I mean, pop. I, no um yeah a bit like when i was i remember when i was when we moved to the states when i was like 10 11 that's when britney spears and all that came about it was the perfect storm it was the perfect storm yeah <laughs> <laughs> but like, before like then like good britney like beginning good britney, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Good not britney, like shaved, shaved head <laughs> yeah not shaved head um but before then i wasn't super into britney um but I kind of got on that train before then. The, the band that kind of changed, like shook my world was R.E.M. Yeah. Um, my dad, this this is in New Zealand. I was maybe like nine, eight or nine. And we were watching this. Um, it's really funny. But because it's not, it wasn't even Michael Stipe. It was this guy on TV dressed as Michael Stipe and doing a Michael Stipe impression. That's funny. Um, it was like this New Zealand talent show and he was playing Losing My Religion and I just lost oh, yeah. my, my shit. Like, and that it, wasn't even the real deal. And it wasn't even the real deal, which is really <laughs> funny. And my dad was like, oh, this is, he's supposed to be Michael Stipe. Like, this is R.E.M. And he like handed me the, um, uh, was it Out of Time? That, oh, right. Yeah, that, yeah, he had a CD. Is that, that the one with Stand? No. Out of Time. That's like later R.E.M. Well, it's Out of Time isn't the one with um, End of the World as We Know It, is it? No, see, that R.E.M. I'm like not, I'm not super. That's good. Uh, that's, oh, really? Yeah, the early oh, so R.E.M. was really good. Oh, I thought that was later. To, in my mind, that's later R.E.M. Oh, maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah, there's like Monster. But it's not. Losing My Religion was later because that I video that came out. No, that came. That video came out on MTV after the "It's the End of the World as We Know It" because it was much more produced. Oh, and then the the whole uh, an automatic for the people came out after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. What was that other video they had that was really big? Not stand, oh, but um, everybody hurts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, um, those are the downer so ones. So funny. I know the early REM was more college rocky, like perky, upbeat. And then it, it got kind of produced and heavy. Yeah, and then later R.E.M., I think after Automatic for the People, and there was like this one, I can just picture the album cover. It was oh, like... Oh, Man on the Moon. That was the other big one. Yeah, but that's later. Yeah, that's R- a later one. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I wasn't super into later R.E.M. It was mostly those two albums, Automatic for the People and Out of Time, mm-hmm. that I was just... Obs- like, I have so many, pretty much from age eight to... Oh, my God. I don't know. Like the time I left high school I was it was like a constant it's kind of silly that it's really funny um I never when you listen to REM with people who never got into REM yeah they're pretty they're like I forgot how it said they, they sort of make they it sort of sounds like they sort of sound like children's songs but yeah, like yeah. but like rock style right 
like the rock version of a child's I don't know now that's sort of what they sound like to me but they were huge to me when I was younger and yeah Britney of course but no like jazz flute no jazz oh yeah actually I was this is really embarrassing I was really into Jethro Tull oh wow because <laughs> he played <laughs> you're, you're knocking it out of the park really here really embarrassing <laughs> um yeah, Death Hotel, because he used to do that thing where he, like, pre- my dad got me a Death Hotel CD. Again, this is before I could, like, make my own decisions of, like, is this cool? Right. Um, but I was like, oh, this person playing the flute that isn't, like, playing Bach, and I don't know, like, it just seemed, because that was my big problem with flute, is it, like, didn't seem applicable to, like. Yeah, it wasn't it, cool. No, it's not cool. It's, like it, no, it, it's has not a cool own, it had its own lane. Yeah. And it was the slow lane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the very slow <laughs> It's, it had its moment, and that was, we're, yeah, we're a bit, we're a bit past. Even in jazz, like Herbie Mann and stuff like that, was a little. Even jazz flute is like, except for Eric Dolphy. Eric Dolphy was like the one guy oh, yeah, I think yeah. who really like went out there with it. Yeah, but there was a lot of cheese. Jazz flute is so frustrating too, because it's like if you're gonna, it just didn't seem like the right. It seemed like a little forced, maybe. Yeah. But that was just because I really wanted to play saxophone and. I don't know it just seemed like the I don't know jazz flute is like flute trying to be something that's not yeah. but Jethro Tull I thought was cool because yeah um just for that reason that he like at least was doing anyways I was really into him he used to do that like stand on one leg and play the flute. <laughs> <laughs> super mortifying yeah, I used to do that in front of my mirror all the time oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was like rocking out All right, that's going to round out this episode of Artists on Music Part 2. We'll definitely be featuring some more in the future, some more of these collaged conversations about music. There's so many artists that I've talked to who it's a big part of their life, and it's something we love to talk about here. So thanks for tuning into this. We've got a lot of really great people lined up for podcasts coming in the next few weeks, so you're going to want to stay tuned. Many thanks to all the artists who I've spoke to here, and also thanks to all the musicians who've lent their songs to the podcast, like Lullatone and um, Evan Marion, Jacob Tutu, and Nazca Lines, Logan Takahashi, and others. Thanks for your support. You can find more information on the podcast at soundivisionpodcast.com, and you can leave a rating and review to support the podcast at iTunes. And you can also become a Patreon patron of the podcast by visiting the website. There's a link there if you want to support it that way. Um, Thanks for listening.